welcome to episode eight of the No Files Given podcast. Perry and I are excited for today's episode. Joining us is Matt Arrington. Matt is the head coach for DC United's U15 team, which participates in the MLS Next Soccer League. He has also served as a first team scout for the Seattle Sounders, as well as an assistant coach for Howard University's NCAA Division I men's soccer team. In 2012, he founded Arrington Training and Development, which provides coaching and training services to athletes of all ages and levels, including players from the U.S. Women's National Team and NCAA Division I teams. We're excited to talk to him about his soccer journey and much more. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to No Fouls Given. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, so, uh, Matt, we've obviously uh, we've had these uh, football talks for a few years now. Uh, we always try to uh, get together every time I'm down in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, let's uh, start off at the beginning. Uh, you know, who introduced you to the sport? How did you get into it? Uh, maybe one or two of your favorite teams or players that kept you uh, kept you involved uh, in terms of uh, watching and um, maybe stylistically on the field, uh, what kind of player you were. Uh, yeah, so I started playing. Uh, my mom got me playing. Um, she would tell me when I was a little kid, uh, or like my babysitter would hold my hands up and like walk me around the house before I could walk. And that's what was when I started kicking a ball. And I think it became pretty evident there that, uh, that's all I wanted to do after, after that. So the first team I ever played for was actually came from, I was in my yard on a daily basis, just like kicking a soccer ball around in my front yard. And there's this guy who would be walking to work every day, going to the Metro. And he, he finally one day like was stopped on the sidewalk outside our yard, like staring at me. So my mom naturally walked out and was like, who the hell is this guy? Like what's happening here? And uh, she was like, can I help you? Is there a reason why you're staring at my <laughs> six-year-old son in the yard? And uh, it was actually a guy named David Weiss, who's a writer for the Washington Post, um, who lived in the neighborhood and had a son who who was on this little rec soccer team that he coached. And he was like, Hey, your son clearly really likes to play. I see him out every day. Is he on a team? No. So I ended up playing for them. So that was my first time playing. Um, I used to be the one kid outside of the mob of players in youth soccer that would just kind of like follow the ball around. You know, you'd have 21 kids in a blob and I'd just be like waiting on the outside for it to spit out. And once it would spit out, I would take it and run away and score. So I think that was my first foray into into tactics. Um, and then years down the line, I ended up playing for Walt Women High School, played for only soccer club in our area, uh, got introduced to my head coach at Bethesda at the time, who was Emil Mbou, who was a former uh, Cameroon national team captain in two World Cups in, in 1990 and 94. He was on the great Cameroon team in, in, in uh, what was in it? Uh, 1990 in Italia. Yeah, yeah. in Italy. Um, and he totally changed the way I viewed the game. Um, it was the first time I couldn't juggle the ball 10 times. I was 15 years old. I couldn't juggle the ball 10 times. He was the first, first person ever asked me to juggle, um, or to really spend time using the ball, mastering the ball, doing moves and stuff like that. And soccer very much changed when I met him from this game of like this territorial battle of like who can kick it the farthest and run the fastest and work harder um to a game of like handling the ball and finding passes and 
and doing moves and really much more of like a free flowing, attractive game, um, which very much changed the way I, I, I saw it. Are um, you still so in touch he, with him today? Yeah, I was actually just on the phone with a friend of mine who I grew up playing with, um, who also coaches. And we were just talking about Emil. He ran into Emil on the field today. Um, so yeah, Emil has, had, Emil has had an enormous impact on my life. Um, maybe the biggest soccer mentor I've had um, in my 32 years on the earth. Uh, but out, outside of that, I think uh, other other players I grew up watching who inspired me, Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho was the big one. I mean, I watched him growing up in those great Barcelona years um, when Guardiola was there. And just the way he played, I've never seen anybody play like him before. Still, even now, I've never seen anyone play like him where he just, the way he moved, I used to try to mimic the way he ran. Um just to like think like I was him and play like him and move like him. Um, he changed the way I saw the game completely more than anyone else I can even think of. Um, yeah. I mean, outside of that, you know, beyond that, I went to college, played soccer in college for two years. Didn't really love it. Didn't really think it was for me. Ended up leaving, went abroad to Italy, played there for about two and a half years. That very much changed the way I saw the world as well. Changed the way I saw soccer. Um, and yeah, now here I am coaching, trying to tie all these experiences into uh, what I'm trying to pass on to these kids now, you know? Um, coming out, uh, going into college, were you, um, were you being scouted by a couple of different universities? What was that process like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was much different than it is now, that's for sure. I mean, there was no, I mean, there was YouTube, but it wasn't in big use or anything like that. It was still very new. I mean, the, the way you got saw, the way you got attention was still by you were either like good enough to be on the national team where you were going to one of the top 10 schools in the country and everybody knew who you were, or you were just like everybody else. You were that next tier of players where you basically had to either get into the top tournaments and win and get attention that way. Or you had to like do your own, your own basically agentry. Like you had to, I had to send the snail mail to coaches, right. And get FedEx packages sent to them so I could get their attention. Um, but yeah, I was talking to a couple of schools. I ended up at George Mason, but I was talking to American university. I was talking to Clemson, um, a handful of random schools, but, um, yeah, I mean, I kind of just ended up going with what at the time was convenient for me was the best, you know, who, who sold me to that best package basically. Um, and who I thought was going to be the closest to the top of the pack in terms of college soccer, you know, rankings and stuff like that. But Probably not a great way to, to go about your college search, it, it, looking back on it. Um, but yeah, that's how I went about it. And you said it wasn't for you. What was the, what, what would you say were maybe the one or two things that turned you off the most about it? Because I mean, I mean, the big thing you hear, especially out of the football and the basketball programs is almost how these college, college kids are being maybe exploited, but they're just not treated fairly. You know, there's no compensation, obviously, sure. even though for those big programs, there's, you know, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, there, there is compensation right. on the side. Um, but what would you say are the two factors that maybe uh, turned you off the most about soccer at that level? Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's, I think I can only speak it, speak about the game. I would say related, uh, related directly to my experience with it. Um, I could make, you know, generalizations across the board, but I think different programs are, you know, doing different things across the country. And it's, you know, I don't want to paint them all with the same brush. I mean, what the situation that I was in that kind of left me falling out of love with it a bit was 
you know, I came in with this idea that it was, we were going to be this more or less possession based, not to use that word the wrong way, but we were going to be this possession based team. We were going to knock the ball around. We we're going to play nice, fluid, free flowing style of soccer. Um, wasn't so much the case when I came in there. Um, it's clearly a different plan versus what was being communicated to me when I committed. Um, and outside of that, you know, I just, I, I was very much in this mindset where I wanted to play pro and that was the only thing I wanted to think about. I wanted to go abroad. I wanted a, a particular type of experience. I wanted to play all the time. Um, and college soccer, you play four months a year if you're lucky. And then you're off for the winter. You're literally not allowed to play. You're not allowed to touch a ball. And then you have this limited window in the spring where you can only touch the ball in a limited fashion. You can only play a certain amount of games, but they don't actually count towards anything. Um, they're just all these kind of ridiculous kind of archaic NCAA rules. And I was just like, what? I was like, what is this? Like, you're telling me I can't play. You're telling me we're not going to train. We're not going to have games. Um, and it just, it just didn't make any sense to me at all. And I went through my freshman year redshirted, which made me miserable because I literally wasn't playing. Um, and then my sophomore year, I started just about every single game except for two or three due to injury and team selection. And so it wasn't an issue of playing time. It was just like this, I'm not enjoying this. Um, and it's funny now how life and things have come full circle. My head coach at the time was Greg Andrewlis, who was an ex Columbus crew um, head coach. He was the MLS coach of the year, you know, a couple of years before he came into George Mason. Um, I was part of his first recruiting class. Um, he is actually the, the U S soccer regional scout now for our area. So I, I mean, I literally saw him today at our game. We, I see him pretty much every weekend now. And we've ended up developing this like really good relationship where, you know, I kind of left when I left school and, and walked away from him, it was kind of like, Oh, is there friction between you two? And, it was just dumb, but there was never an issue there. I mean, I had my own problems I needed to sort out, but now I see him and we talk all the time. And I think, I think the, maybe the, 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 a way that at least it seems like he looks at it, which maybe helps me cope with it. And he's, is he said to somebody one day with the three of us in conversation with somebody else, he was like, yeah, Matt was like a few years ahead of his time at Mason. Like I wanted to come in and put the ball down and play and, 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 you know, play a certain style. And he's like, we just weren't there yet. And I don't think it's a compliment to me or anything of sort. It was just, we were in different places at that time, which is fine. Um, and I think it's a good way to look at it looking back. Yeah, that's, that's nice. And it's, it's, it's a nice, like, it's very nice. The way you said it comes full circle and you're, you now yeah. get to see him every weekend. Um, so in your next kind of step was uh, going to Italy, which is obviously a big jump. Uh, how did you get, uh, you know, how did you get involved with, who was the person that took you there? Was it kind of you finding your way there? How did it work? And what were kind of the, obviously you go into, was there culture shock, you know, your day-to-day both on and off the pitch. Tell us about that transition. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that I got in there was very much by fate or good fortune. I mean, however you want to look at it. Um, I think very often in, in any situation like this with any player who, let's say, gets an opportunity, um, I think there's a lot of luck, for lack of a better word. That's not really a word I love, but maybe it's good timing. Um, but basically my my stepdad was an Italian citizen. He was part of an organization called the National Italian American Foundation. 
And he was at some event that they had. He was talking to a friend of his there who actually lives in Italy, an Italian guy, um, catching up with her family. My, you know, he, he ended up asking about me because he knew I played soccer and I had just left Mason at that point. And my stepdad told him, he's like, yeah, he, you know, he stepped away from the college game. He's looking to do something abroad. Um, so he's just trying to, to make his headway um, in that direction. And the guy was like, oh, well, my daughter lives in Italy. Let me check with her. She might know somebody. Ended up one of her best friends was a former pro. Um, that guy's former coach was an agent. So it was like this series of people who got me in touch with this guy, Walter Martucci, who is actually one of the head scouts for AS Roma now. And basically what I did was, you know, I sent him my film. He watched it. He agreed to have me over there for like a week um, to, to trial with some teams just so he could, so he could see me in person. So flew over there, spent a week there, trained with uh, AS Roma's reserve team. Um, and he would come out and watch. And basically he was like, you know, you've more or less confirmed what I've seen in the video. I'll represent you. And he sent up a few trials. That was winter time. He set up a few trials for the following uh, summer. And went back there, bumped around the country for a few months, trying out with teams, deciding about what made the most sense from an offer standpoint and a logistics standpoint, um, and ended up signing with a small team in uh, in Rome called San Paolo Stiense. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was an extremely unique experience. I think culture shock. Uh, yeah, there's definitely culture shock um, from things as simple as learning language and just trying to survive and get around to um, you know, kind of understanding how they did things there, whether it's from a soccer standpoint or just from a life standpoint, you know, um, I think we have a certain way of operating here in the States more or less. Like the, the guy who ended up looking out for me, who was working for my agent, this guy named Dante Mortet, who's like family now. Um, basically I would talk to him on a daily basis and he would tell me, he was like, Oh, come meet me for lunch. You know, uh, you know, come meet us at noon. Well, I would show up at noon, like on the dot and nobody would be there. And I'd just be like standing there waiting. And then like 1215, 1230, 1245, the guys would start showing up and they'd be like, what are you doing here? I think you told me noon for lunch. And they're like, yeah, okay, good. You're here. Great. You know, you made it. But it was like, it's this much more like blase, easygoing type of mentality. So at first that stuff like that used to frustrate me, but then I got used to it and kind of caught up to the speed of how they did things and, and, and kind of fell into their culture. But, you know, it was, uh, it was, a, it was an incredible experience. Italy is very much a second home to me now. Um, I, you know, I picked up most the language pretty well, um, very much conversational, not fluent necessarily, but it's, uh, it was a fantastic experience to me overall looking back on it and, you know, I don't, I don't think I would have traded for the world. And there was so much that more that I learned there, both from, you know, a soccer and a life standpoint that I would have absolutely never gotten at college. And, you know, I don't, I don't think I have any regrets looking back on it. I think it was very much an important piece of, of my development. Where you mentioned uh, the AS Roma uh, reserves, uh, anyone that we would know, on that team that maybe you trained with, or you had the chance to play alongside. I'm, I'm trying to think your age group, maybe a Florenzi. Yeah. Florenzi was in there. Uh, Greco was in there. Greco ended up having a good, he spent a bunch of years with uh, Sassuolo, I believe. And then Are I think saying, he did end up. 
Leandro Greco. Uh huh. Yeah, he yeah. played for Olympiacos. Here you go. That's your you boy. That's your team. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, a, a couple of guys. It was funny um, when I came home, um, and I was home that spring preparing to go back that summer. Um, I would turn on AS Roma games and later on in the spring as the season was kind of winding down and the, the table was more or less set, nobody was moving. Like you started to see guys sprinkled in like on the bench that they were trying to just get into the team and, and bloody up a little bit and give experience to. And I was like, Oh man, that's, I train with that guy, you know, I know that guy so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, they were, they were fantastic, man. I, I mean, I'm an 88. They were probably all 89s and nineties in that team when I went, um, and just, just what great players I, I, when I was training with them, it was, it was not an issue of athleticism. Like I could, I could very much hang athletically, but they were always one step quicker. They were always like a thought ahead of mine. And I just had never been in an environment like that before. Um, and I was certainly not good enough to play in Serie A by any means. I was certainly not, not there like competing for a position. It was just there because the agent had a connection and he could, see me there and it was convenient. Um, but I, I can only imagine what it would be like to, to be in an environment like that on a day-to-day basis and have that challenge day-to-day from the players around you. It was fantastic. Had you had the chance to meet any players from the first team at the time? Yeah. So when I showed up there, um, I got there early, naturally being, being an American, I got there very early and I was like there waiting uh, in their front lobby or reception area of their training ground, which is called Trigoria, which is just on the outskirts of Rome. Um, and I, they'd sent a car for me. So I, I'd pull up, you know, in this like nice Mercedes sitting in the back seat as if I'm some, somebody important, you know, and I like pulled to the gates and there are all these kids who clearly were skipping school. Um, but just there trying to kind of see their heroes are all waiting outside, like peeking in the window. And so I, I pull in total nobody and I'm just waiting there early and, like walking in, you have like Daniele De Rossi walk in, Philippe Maxess walk in, uh, Cicino, Juan, like all these great players like Simone Perotta. Um, and then Francesco Totti walks in, who's just like my absolute idol, who I had watched from my living room in, in Maryland for years and years and years. Um, watch him play, you know, in the World Cup in Korea, Japan and, and Perez Roma. And so now I'm like standing there like, this guy's right in front of me. He's, he's the only person I've ever met who I, who I was like starstruck by. It was just made speechless, but we get to talking and, um, or we don't get to talking because I didn't speak any of the language at the time and he didn't speak any English, but uh, Dante, the, my agent's guy who was looking out for me there, he's like, Oh, Francesco, come here. Like, this is Matt. He's here from America. Uh, you know, do you have anything to say to him? Do you have any uh, advice? And he's just like, you know, what are you doing here? Like, oh, I'm trying to play soccer. And he goes, oh, cool. Where are you from? I'm from Maryland, outside of D.C. And clearly we had nothing to talk about because we couldn't communicate with each other. And he just kind of like stood there and looked around and was like, all right, well, this conversation's over. And just like patted me on the back. And in English, he actually goes, good luck. And he just like walks away, like off into the distance. And I was just like, wow, I will never forget this moment. And I have a picture with him, which I should have like framed somewhere giant in our house. But I don't know how how much of a fan my wife would be of that. Um, that's awesome. To this day, to be honest, Rome for me is the most beautiful city I have ever visited. So for a guy like you that go- comes over from the U.S., do you get a chance to enjoy any of the beauty or are you just so dialed into you know, what you're, you're there for and you're just focused and 
sort of you, you, you look back and you're like, I wish I did this or, I, you know, I enjoyed it in this fashion? Uh, no, I, I think I had a, a really unique experience in the sense of I, I was playing soccer and we had a pretty packed schedule with things. And I was also going to school part time while I was there, both as a way to uh, appease my parents a bit and be like, you know, I, to- I haven't totally quit on school. But it was actually the second, the second part of it, which was great. And I didn't realize how important this would be to me, but it gave me something to do outside of training because training was only, you know, took up three, four hours of my day and I needed to meet people. Um, I needed to have a break from speaking or trying to speak or trying to learn Italian all the time and actually have people I could speak English with and friends to hang out with and stuff like that. And, um, I'll, I'll actually preface all this by saying I had, I'd gone to Rome one time in my life prior to me moving there, which was on like a Euro trip with a couple of friends. I think it was my freshman year of college and I hated it. It was the, it was the one city we went to out of like, you know, Prague, Barcelona, London, all these different cities out of all of them. I hated it. Like we all hated Rome. Um, and so I ended up going back there and moving there and having this experience where like all these, all these kids who, I was at university with every weekend, they'd be traveling every weekend. It'd be like, you know, Prague, uh, Brussels, Berlin, London. Like they wanted to see all of Europe, which I understood, but I was kind of, for lack of a better word, stuck there because I had game every weekend and I trained the next day and we had recovery session after the game and all this kind of stuff. So I couldn't go anywhere. So I was very much rooted in Rome and I had to really get to know Rome. Um, so what I ended up happening was like my friends would be away. I'd finish training and I would just kind of put my, you know, headphones in. I'd just like walk around town and like try to get lost and then try to figure out where I was and find my way back. Um, and I got to know the city really, really well. Um, I would go to bars and restaurants like by myself all the time when people were away. And I got to make friends with, you know, waiters and waitresses and owners of these bars who would ended up kind of looking out for me because I was the guy who would show up and just be like, oh, you know, is there a soccer game on that I can watch? And, you know, they'd be like, you know, here's a beer. Like they, they look out for me and I just kind of made friends and relationships that way. Um, and it just forced you so far out of your comfort zone. Um, and then just from the from the perspective of just being in a city like that, I would be, you know, there was a lot of Saturday sessions we had early in the mornings. So I would have to be out of my apartment by like 6 a.m., 7 a.m. And 6 a.m. on a Saturday in Rome is dead silent. Like everyone is at home in bed sleeping. And I would be walking through town, like past the Pantheon, past the Colosseum, past, you know, Piazza Navona and like the Trevi Fountain with zero people there, like totally uninterrupted. And there were a lot of days where I'd walk by, like, especially the Pantheon, which is just this incredible dome-like structure. And I would just be like, this is nuts. Like, you just have to like, take a step back sometimes and be like, this is insane. This thing's been here for 5,000 years. And I'm walking and I'm the only person here right now. And I can just stop and like, listen to the silence and just enjoy it. Um, so I had a lot of moments like that where it forced me to be okay with being alone. And it forced me to just be thankful for like what I was doing and where I was and the experience I was having. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, in our first episode, I asked Evan a question about uh, if you could pick uh, one city where you would send your kid 
to be an, uh, an academy player. He would spend his youth and you get to live in that city. Uh, we didn't mention Rome uh, and, and Roma in that yeah. in our answers, but we had a we had a listener who actually said, why wouldn't you pick Ro- Roma? Like you're living in Rome, which you just gave us a bit of a description of what that's like day to day. And yeah. then Roma is one of those Italian teams where you kind of consistently see them bring um, players from their youth into their first team. Um, yeah, I think, I think they do it better than most Italian clubs. But Roma is one of those interesting teams where they go through these weird cycles of two, three years of being really good. And then they'll yeah. go through two, three years of being <laughs> not seven, so good. Seventh, eighth. <laughs> um, I know, man. It's, and right now they're going torture. through one of those good cycles, right? You know? Yeah. They're, yeah. They're Last well. year they weren't. This year they are. <laughs> exactly. But so you have this year and next year and then <laughs> something. Right. Exactly. Switch. So we, the, the Roma fans, you know, you don't get too high with the highs. You don't get too yeah. low with the lows. You just even keel, you know? You got to write it out. Um, so uh, you spend two, two years or three years in Italy? before you come back two and a half two and a half half. Mm -hmm. um so you come back to the u.s did you try to pursue uh go back to college were you eligible to go back to college or mls was that a route you were even interested in or for you it was jumping into coaching right after that yeah i mean the the college the college route i have no idea because there's so many rules and regulations and eligibility and division one two three and naia like I, i had no idea if i was eligible for anything um so I didn't, I didn't really think too hard about the college route. My, my mind was very much set at that point of staying in Europe and, and continuing to pursue a professional career. Um, when I left Italy, the reason why I left was because I, I didn't have citizenship. And I had literally spent two and a half years trying to get my citizenship because at that time, the rules um, from the Italian, fo- the Italian Soccer Federation there was basically Serie A, you could have, I think it was seven non-European players on your roster at that point. Um, And you had to have like two U23 players from Italy on your roster and one had to start each game. And there are all these different rules that were built in. In Serie B and Serie C, it was 100% Italian. And the only players who were allowed to be foreign players on a roster in B and C had to be on loan from a Serie A club. Um, and then D and below, you had one foreign player allowed on each roster. So one non-EU player. Um, so it was a strange situation for me because it was just like, okay, well, I had offers from two teams in Serie B and one in Serie C, but I couldn't sign anything without my papers. So I ended up signing for these teams in, in the fifth division and sixth division and just trying to stay relevant and stay active and stay playing. Um, and basically midway or late into my second year there, I got a trial offer from this team called Arezzo, which was in Serie C. And it was actually coached by, what was his name? This drives me crazy. I forget it all the time. It was coached by this, by this guy who was a former player who I had actually gone on trial with a former team he was with when I first arrived, a team called Torre Teste. And I went to Arezzo, uh, spent a few days there, trained with the team, they understood my situation like when they brought me in, they knew that I didn't have papers, but they were like, listen, we know you're trying to get them. We're being told by your agent that you're getting closer and closer. Um, you know, what we'll do is basically you can stay here. We'll pay for your housing and put you up and all that kind of stuff. 
And when the papers come through, if you get your citizenship, we'll, we'll push everything through and, you know, get you into the roster and so on and so forth. Us sitting here talking about it, it makes it look like, oh, well, why wouldn't you do that? Obviously, right? But the reality was at that point is that I had spent over two years waiting for this paperwork to go through and just getting, getting so frustrated by the Italian bureaucracy and, and the system there and how slow things were and the lack of communication. I, like, I totally lost faith that I was ever going to get this thing. And looking at other countries, at Germany, at Switzerland, uh, Finland, we're talking to teams there, Belgium. They were places that had much, that were much more lenient in terms of allowing foreigners into their leagues. So basically, the conversation with Arezzo was, thank you, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to go home at the end of the season, which was only a few weeks after that trial. So I'm going to go home. Um, we're going to reassess things. And if my paperwork comes through while I'm home, then let's talk. Let's pick up the conversation again. Um, but otherwise, I'm going to try to pursue these other options in other countries. So. Long story short, flew home, continued to train plane, uh, tore my hip flexor. That was nine months out. Came back from that, tore my labrum in my shoulder. That was another few months out. And it was just like, you know, whatever, bad luck, injuries happen. But it was like a year and a half of injuries that just got me to very much a reckoning where I was like, I have to figure out what I'm going to do here because I have to pay rent. I have to make money. I'm not in school. Like, I, do I keep chasing this dream? Does that make sense for me? Like, what is my direction? Um, and sometimes life just comes at you fast and you have to make decisions. So that's what ended up happening for me. The torn hip flexor must have hurt. That was the most painful injury I've ever had in my life. I, I've only ever so slightly strained mine and I felt like I couldn't do anything. Yeah, I remember I, I went up for a <laughs> header. I went up for a header and a guy came into my back as I was in the air. I landed basically on my chest. And if you can imagine your legs like butterfly, like you would do like a groin stretch sitting on the ground. And the guy basically landed on my back and I just heard it go like pop. And I was like, oh shit. And um, <laughs> I somehow drove home and it was excruciating pain. I remember like trying to get myself into bed and I couldn't lift my leg up. And I get into bed and I'm like shaking and sweating and it was like the dumbest thing ever, man. And my dad still gives me shit for this. I like texted my dad. Why well, didn't just call him? I don't know. But I like texted my dad. My mom was away. I'm like, dad, like I hurt my leg really badly or something. I was like, I might need to go to the hospital. And so finally I fall asleep. I wake up. It must have been a few hours later. Like my body had gone into shock because it was so painful, like just soaked in sweat, shaking uncontrollably, so on and so forth. And my dad, I remember waking up the, the second time at like 6 a.m. And my dad is calling me repeatedly. And he's like, what is going on? Like, are you okay? I'm just waking up reading this message that you have to go to the hospital. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I was like, sorry, sorry. I was just like, you know, not in a right state of mind. I got hurt. This is what happened. He's like, don't ever do that again, please. But yeah, that was a long recovery, man. That was very painful. It hurt to, to walk for a very long time. Can they even do anything for a hip flexor or it's just it needs time? It, it needs time. I mean, it, you could go down the road of surgery if it really was a full tear and it was a, a, a big issue and you need to get back for something imminently. But uh, yeah, mine was, you just, I just needed to wait and rest and rehab and that sucked. It was not fun. Yeah. Um, so you start to get into coaching. 
uh, what's your kind of uh, baby steps into that? Because then you eventually, you know, uh, found you founded Arrington Training and Development. Yeah. What, what were the kind of steps before that that you that led to you saying, you know what, let me just go on my own and do my own thing? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, once I was home, and you know, more or less, I was just basically like, I need to work. I need to figure stuff out. I need to decide if I'm going to go back to school and still playing and training on the side. Like didn't give that up. Just, uh, you know, you never know. The back, I mean, at the end of the day, I loved playing. That's all I wanted to do. So I was still going to do that. So I was still playing in men's leagues in the area and amateur leagues and going to any pickup game I could get to and still training with my old coach and stuff like that. Um, but I was working delivery. I was like delivering at a restaurant. I was working in a kitchen at a restaurant. I worked for a moving company for like six months. Um, I was just doing all these jobs where I could just like make some money and still kind of have the freedom to do whatever I, you know, I guess whatever came up and I could still play in games all the time and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, eventually I got to a point where it was like, what am I doing? Like, what's the direction here? I was going to school part-time at a community college here and I was just I was just so disinterested in, in any of it. Like I was studying special education and I was really passionate about that for a bit. I was even, you know, a student aide at a school, um, at a special ed program and which I'm still very passionate about, but I was just like, I was like, this isn't it. Like, this isn't what I want to do on a day-to-day basis. I was back in the area and he called me up and he was just like, Hey, listen, I got a couple of teams. I coach like rec teams. He's like, he was basically like, do you want to, do you want to coach them? I'm going to, he's basically getting back into a different job. He had just accepted an offer for just like a nine to five. And he was like, I'm not gonna have time for these kids anymore. Do you want to coach them? Sure. Never coached before, but sure. Why not figure it out? So that was my first foray into coaching of just coaching these rec teams and just like being around that team environment, these kids who were very much just out there have a good time, which was probably the best thing for me at that point was just to kind of get this re maybe this reminder or this calibration of like, take a step away from like all the crazy high level intensity, you know, or, or over intensity of soccer at that level. And just like take a step back and look at kids who are just playing for fun and be a part of that. Um, and I think that very much got me into where I was like, okay. And I started to learn more about it. I had a friend, I, the, the friend I talked to on the phone today, Andrew Bonata, um, he was coaching. So I called him, he'd been coaching for a couple of years and started to pick his brain about stuff. How do you do it? Uh, who do you coach? Uh, there's a licensing process. How do I go through that? What's that all about? How does that work? Um, what are the leagues like in our area? What's the landscape like? What are the clubs like? And it just led to one thing to the other and started getting jobs, different places and started accumulating more teams, which then led to me calling friends to come help me out, which then turned into a business, which was ATD. And it all just kind of happened organically, I guess, for lack of a better word, or accidentally. Um, so yeah, that was the, that was the pathway, I guess, or the start of it. And are you still able to, uh, do the ATD stuff? Are you able to oversee some of the decision-making on that side while you're still at DC United now? Yeah, it's a balancing act. Um, and at ATD, basically we have have like two sectors of ATD. We have like the soccer side, which is teams that we coach, like youth teams. We have uh, 14, I think right now, 14 teams and um, summer camps and clinics and training programs and stuff. And then the other part of ATD is now this performance and uh, rehab side that we've tied in. 
Um, we opened up our own facility like four years ago. We just moved into a bigger facility last year. So there we have like, uh, you know, we have a gym, we have a sports medicine, we have a turf area. Um, and I have people managing each of those sectors. And I try to help and manage as best as I can from above. But I'm very fortunate that I have two really, really good people um, in Alessandro Charla and Lance Van Winter, who are two guys who are just really helping me to keep things structured and in line and balanced and organized and keep it moving forward. Um, so uh, with my time with Sigma, we did these great trips abroad uh, that were so beneficial to uh, to the kids. And we, we like to do it at, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. Uh, sure. we, we thought that that was great for their development at that moment. Uh, and through ATD, uh, you've had the opportunity to do some of this traveling abroad. Uh, in particular, you've been able to go to two markets, which are significant football markets, but not your traditional you know, oh, we want to go there. It's, you know, it's not, it's not the sexy destinations. Uh, The first destination I want to, I want you to talk to us about is you had the chance to go to one of the greatest uh, academies in Africa over in, Mm -hmm. uh, in Ghana. Uh, Tell us how that came about and tell us about your experience because, you know, that's something that very few people get to experience. Yeah. The way that that came about was um, I was, I was back home training and, um, uh, I was home. I think it was, it, it was Thanksgiving. I was home. Uh, it was after my foray in, in Italy and I was still training and playing and figuring it out. And I was back here training. It was around Thanksgiving. And I remember that because, uh, an old friend of mine, who's, who's a number of years younger than me, who was playing at a boarding school, this kid named Elliot Howe. Um, he had come home for Thanksgiving break. And he had brought home a teammate with him, this kid named Eric Apoku, who ended up playing at Bates College. He's a wonderful kid, Ghanaian kid. And so he brought Eric out to train with us. And I had grown up with a bunch of Ghanaians and I'd just been around them my whole life and their culture. And it was something that was very close to me. And so I immediately started clicking with Eric where I was talking to him about, you know, cuisine like Ghanaian cuisine and culture and and stuff like that and we really connected over it he was like oh I grew up playing at this academy called right to dream he's like you should really go over there have you ever been to Ghana I was like no but I was like yeah sure you know I'll go whatever um I didn't think anything of it at the time but then it was literally a day or two later I got uh, I think it was a phone call or an email whatever it was I got contacted by the basically the director of their school um, this guy named um, Harry Adekpoy, who contacted me. And he was like, hey, Eric mentioned you want to come visit. When would you like to come? I was like, wow, okay. Well, I didn't expect that to happen. But now that this 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 opportunity has presented itself, sure, I'll go. Why not? So uh, I gave him a time frame. We coordinated uh, a couple of weeks for me to go over there. I flew over there. And I remember arriving and being like, wow, where the hell am I? It was the middle of the night. And it was very dark and there was, I was just like in a different world and basically I walk into the airport and this guy is just like, you know, you're Matt, right? Yeah. He's like, okay, come with me. I was like, okay, here we go. Hopped in his pickup truck, drove, you know, out of Accra um, to, I think, what was it called? Akamsombo to where the Academy is and kind of arrived in this Academy. And I remember, waking up the next morning and looking out the window and all the kids had already been out to, to get their daily routine started. 
Um, and I'm like, open up my window. I'm like looking across like all these fields in the middle of, you know, this just open land in Ghana. It's just like, wow, I'm very much in a different part of the world. And the, the 10 days that I spent there was absolutely incredible. Um, the level of talent was astonishing. Um, their U12 players were doing stuff that I was seeing U18, like our top U18 and U20s struggle with here in the United States. Um, and I was just, I was just blown away by the whole thing and really spent a lot of time with the players and talking to them, talking to the staff, um, seeing how they operated things on a day-to-day basis, how they ran training sessions for different age levels and, and how they applied things to the games they played. Um, it was incredible. And the founder, this guy named Tom Vernon, he popped in there one afternoon for a special event they had. And I don't think he had any idea that I was there, but he certainly didn't have any idea who I was. Um, and I remember someone pointed out to me, I think it was Harry. He was like, Hey, that's Tom. That's the guy who, who runs the whole thing. He's the founder. And so I walked over and I just introduced myself and I told him, thank you for having me and so on and so forth. And he was kind of like, yeah, who are you? Like, where are you from? Yeah. What do you do? Good. Okay. Well, yeah, no problem. Like, thanks for stopping by, whatever. And after I had come home, I sent him a message to thank him again. And he was basically like, you know, let's talk sometime. He's like, we're having a a fundraising event in New York. Um, Come to it. And, you know, maybe we can take a few minutes to talk there. So I ended up going to this fundraising event in New York. Um, ended up grabbing, going out for drinks and stuff after the event with him, getting food and sharing a cab on the ride home. And he was just like getting to an idea more and more of who I was. And he was like, listen, he's like, are you 15 boys are taking a trip to Manchester? Cause at that point they had a, a partnership with Manchester city, um, where basically Manchester city at that time had first right of refusal to any of the players out of the Academy. So they basically send a team or two over to Manchester for like a month at a time where they would just play games and trial and train. Um, and so he's like, listen, the team's going to Manchester. If you'd like to go buy your plane ticket and you can just stay with us over there. Okay, done. No problem. So flew to Manchester, spent about five or six days over there with them. Um, he ended up flying in just to drop in on checking, th- checking on things as well. Uh, got a little bit more of his time, got to know him a little bit better. And uh, went to the fundraiser again the next year, talked more and more. And then that led eventually to Denmark because he basically sent me a message one day. and was like, hey, let's get on a phone call. I have some news for you, which was that they had just purchased FC Norgy's land in Denmark. So now he had Right to Dream in Ghana, the academy. And now he had FC Norgy's land, the pro team and the academy in Denmark, just outside of Copenhagen. And so he's like, come visit. It's like, buy a plane ticket. We'll take care of the rest. Absolutely. So I bought a plane ticket. I flew to Copenhagen, uh, spent a week there with them. Um, saw a lot of familiar faces, a lot of the kids who I'd spent time with in Ghana and then in Manchester, now in Copenhagen, as well as their coach, Fraser Robinson, who is a Scottish guy who was just like, I think the world of, and I still stay in touch with and just talk about a great soccer brain and an even better human being. Um, but it was, it was, again, it's just a total invaluable experience um, to, to see how they do things, to be in a different part of the world, to, to understand a different culture, um, and just build relationships with people who I otherwise would have never had if it weren't for soccer. And honestly, just saying yes to people and not turning down opportunities and just saying, you know, 
you know, fuck it, whatever, just go. Sure. Why not? What do you have to lose? Oh, you don't have the money for it. Who cares? Go figure it out, go and worry about the money and stuff later, you know? Um, and it was, it's, it's continued this day to be, to be really special because now I'm seeing guys like, uh, Mohamed Kudus, for example, who's in Ajax's first team, who was one of their biggest signings. He, I saw him when he was 12 years old at, in Ghana. I saw him at four, you know, 13 or 14 in Manchester. I saw him at 16 in, in Denmark. And now he's playing for Ajax. And just being witness to that, it's like, wow, this is so cool. And so many of these guys who have gone on to have pro careers or play over here in the States, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. I just, I'm like thrilled to have just been a fly on the wall for what they're doing. On the uh, coaching front uh, back home now, uh, tell us about, so you had, you told us how you weren't a fan of the player experience uh, in college, but you end up coaching uh, on an NCAA team. You were the assistant coach at Howard, um, yeah. Howard University. Um, taking the knowledge of your experience as a player, uh, tell us what you brought as a as a college coach. Uh, well, what did I bring? Um, well, for one, I don't you, know. you, did, you you did bring the program more wins. That helped. That 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 eventually <laughs> happened. That eventually happened. But when you win one game a season, you know there's kind of nowhere but to go but up. <laughs> so, the first couple of years were really hard, man. The first couple of years were extremely, extremely hard. And, and I'll, I'll just preface, preface it with this. Like looking back at my time at Howard, it was extremely difficult. And there were a lot of times that challenged me in many different ways where, you know, similar to my experience in Italy, like I had to grow up very quickly. And, but when I look back on it, I look back on it very fondly because it, I, I met amazing people. I learned a ton um, I was given a load of responsibility, which I'm not sure I was prepared for, um, or I can tell you I definitely wasn't prepared for at that point in time, but it was trial by fire. You just had to figure it out and take action and make things happen. Um, so I'm grateful for, for having had that opportunity. Um, I think what I brought there was, was I think, a connection for the, for the players to the coaching staff. Um, I think just naturally, just because I was by far the youngest guy on the staff. I mean, at that point I was 20, I was 26 when I came in. Um, and I was a volunteer assistant for two years and then became the formal assistant at 28. And like, you know, I just wasn't that far out from playing. And I think I could just see eye to eye with a lot of these kids. And I think treating them like an equal was something that, that, you know, they really valued and appreciated. And, you know, I, I think it allowed us to develop a relationship that eventually led to some success. Um, but I, I mean, you know, I guess if, if, what did I bring? I guess it was that. And I think maybe outside of that, it was a, a burning desire to be successful. It was a desire to just work constantly. It was a desire to go do all the stuff that maybe I wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to do if I had taken a job with a Georgetown or a Maryland or a UVA, not that those options were presenting themselves, but you know, where you come into a system that's like already fixed and already works and is clearly already showing success. I came into a program that was, we were 264 out of 265 division one men's soccer programs. I mean, we, the program was in complete, I mean, it was, 
the bottom. VMI was the only team below us. Um, we had a team that was on academic probation my first two years there. So we had like half or no scholarships. We didn't have any postseason play. We had limited training hours. I mean, it was just like digging out of the deepest hole you can imagine from a college perspective. And eventually we got out of it. And eventually I was given this assistant role where I took on a hundred percent of the responsibility for recruiting and a hundred percent of the responsibility for running training sessions. So I started to develop a very direct way of impacting how we played and who we brought in to play in that system. Um, and you could see gradually in those years, which is something I'm very proud of my first year there, uh, or my first year as volunteer assistant, we won one game. My second year, we won zero games. My first year as a formal assistant, we won one game, but we gave up half as many goals and we scored twice as many goals and every single major statistic improved. So I was like, okay, signs of progress. My second year there as a formal assistant, we won, I think we won two games, but tied five. Um, and again, halved our goal against and scored more goals and every statistical category improved. So I was like more signs of progress, like we're getting somewhere. And then my last year there, we won five games. We tied, I think six or seven. And of the ones we lost, it was like seven of eight of them were by one goal. Like we were in every single game. We were winning games. Finally, we were making progress. The team, I mean, you just watch them and you'd be like, this is a better team. Than it was a year or two years ago. Um, we were getting better players in there. The culture had kind of started to create itself of, from a commitment standpoint. Um, and it seemed just felt like there's direction again. But at that same time, the DC United position came in and it was an opportunity that I couldn't really refuse. Um, but it was, it was extremely difficult personally leaving Howard. Um, I felt a ton of attachment to that place. And uh, I, I still do. I still do. I still totally root for them. And I keep in touch with loads of the players. And um, like I said, I look back on it very fondly. But during the time, it was really, really difficult. Matt, I always wanted to know. So in the beginning, when okay, the team wasn't performing very well, and you're coming in as an assistant coach at the age of 26. So already at an age where you're quite close to the one of the players. Did you ever find yourself being questioned or your decisions are being questioned by them just because the team's not performing well and based on the fact that you're so close in age to them? Uh, the, the short answer is yes. Um, I think I was just having this conversation with somebody, I think yesterday or the day before. It's so easy to convince everybody that what you're doing is right when you're winning. And you look at my boys right now. So here's my, uh, here's me, my humble brag right now is like my U15 boys at DC. We've, we've our last, what are we 11, 12 games? We haven't lost in 12 games and 10 of those have been wins. Um, and the majority of them against older opponents against teams a year older than us. It's very easy for me to take that team and be like, everything I'm doing is right because we're not losing. The harder part is to look at it extremely critically and being like, there's still a ton of stuff we need to improve on. And some of our success is attributed to what we're doing. Some of it's attributed to mistakes the opponent's making. You know, we can look at it a hundred different ways. It would be wrong for me to sit here and be like, yeah, we're all good. We're winning. Everything I'm doing is right. Don't question me. When you're on a losing team and I spent four, five years in a losing program, like torturous, painful losing, uh, a zero win season is something I've, 
I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. I mean, it is absolutely, I can't even describe in words how painful it is to go to each game and just have, like end up with your head in your hands of like, what am I doing? And of course, when you're losing, everyone questions you. Every single kid on the team, every single fan in the stand, every single parent, every single administrator is like, well, why didn't you play that kid? Well, why did he do that? Why are you starting him? Well, why don't they just kick the ball downfield? Why don't they just do this instead of that? And all of a sudden, everybody is in a better position than you are to make a decision because you're proving that you can't win. So whatever you're doing isn't working. And the hardest part is keeping people bought into what you're doing while you're losing. And the most important part of that is having a long-term plan and sticking to it. And eventually someone's going to make a decision above you of like, okay, there's direction here. There's a plan here. We're seeing progress or his plan is not working. And it's clearly showing on the field through results. We're not seeing improvements. This person has to go. We have to make a change. Um, but keeping players bought into that, it's extremely difficult. And they were, I mean, it's a day to day management of talking to players and Hey, we've lost six games and I haven't played yet. Why am I not playing? Why don't I get more minutes? He isn't doing his job, but you're still playing him. Or he isn't winning. The group isn't winning. I'm still on the bench. Why aren't I playing? Loads of conversations like that. And sometimes you have to be really, it's hard to describe. Sometimes you have to be brutally honest with people. And other times you have to pat them on the back. And, you know, kind of caress them and be like, listen, trust me, you, you, you can't just come and be like, oh, because I said so. Because you're losing. So you, you have to be able to develop the relationship with the players. You have to have a reason for what you're doing. You have to have a short term plan and a long term plan. You have to be you have to be constantly ready to defend yourself. Um, and so I did that for four years. And so now it's like. I look back on those five years I had with Howard and those four years of just getting absolutely pummeled and losing over and over again. And I think those years prepared me so much better for where I am now and where I want to go than if I had been at a Georgetown or a Maryland or a UVA or a Stanford. And we just won because we're Stanford and everyone wants to play at Stanford. I'm going to get the 10 best kids every year and we're just going to plop them in the right place. And even if I played a, a, a six two two formation, it wouldn't matter because we have so much talent in the field. We're going to win some games just because we have good players. Like having a team of players, the first year I came in, some of which who didn't even play club soccer, some of which whose highest level of play was high school soccer, are playing division one. And you have to find a way to win with those players. I mean, the challenges were astronomical. And um, like I said, I, I, it was extremely painful, but I, I think it prepared me better than anything else I could imagine. Because I'm thinking the, the programs that you mentioned there are probably even recruiting players from outside the U.S., you know, whereas yeah. maybe Howard, we're, we're mostly looking at U.S.-born players or Washington, you know, Washington, uh, Maryland-based players. So it's, it's funny you say that, though, because we, we very much had a mix of some local talent. Um, some players domestically from other parts of the country. And then we would always have um, just kind of more or less just through, through the history of Howard men's soccer. We 
we constantly had players from the West Indies. So from Trinidad and Tobago, from Jamaica, um, from different parts of, of, of the world um, in, that, in that part of the world. What I very much tried to do was to tap much deeper into the soccer market in, in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. My biggest issue was that we weren't getting enough players from there. And so, you know, my whole thing was like, listen, we don't have a bunch of money to go recruiting. We don't have a bunch of money to go find all these players across the world like a lot of these mid-majors are doing. The talent is here. We're in the third best, you know, uh, part of the country in relation to soccer outside of California and Texas, obviously one and two. The D.C. metropolitan area is three. Like, how are we not pulling better players here? The issue was us. They don't know we're here. So I literally, I mean, I just did things that were like obvious, I think, but just hadn't happened yet. I ran our first ID camp. Howard University had never had an ID camp for men's soccer, which is crazy. Like, did that. I moved our our soccer player questionnaire, our, our you know potential prospective student athlete questionnaire from like this hidden tab inside our website somewhere that no one could find to literally like front and center of the men's soccer page. And the emails would come directly to me. And like, I mean, no joke, like as soon as I did that within a matter of days, like emails started coming in and I started getting like anywhere from like 20, 30, 40, 50 emails a week of players like, Hey, I've been trying to get in touch with you for six months, for one year, for two years. I mean, it was nuts, dude. There were tons of kids who wanted to play there, but just didn't have access and didn't know how to get in touch with anyone. And it was just a matter of like organizing things there and making it easy because the program has so much history, man. It's run two national championships in 71 and 74. Even one was taken away. Don't care. It was taken away for bullshit reasons. They won two national why, championships. Why was it taken away? Why was it taken away? So it was taken away because <laughs> here, here is the, the NCAA side. The NCAA side, it was taken away because uh, Howard University had fielded a player who was ineligible because – Apparently, he had played professionally in his home country, which I don't think anyone ever found documentation of. And the player was like, no, I didn't. I mean, it was crazy. What it was, the reason why, is because Nixon was trying to get reelected. Howard won the national championship. He was trying to cater to the black vote. So he contacted Lincoln Phillips, who was the head coach at the time and is an absolute legend in the soccer realm in the United States and in Trinidad. Lincoln Phillips basically said, hey, came to the team. They want to have us at the White House. Do we want to go? Very much like we saw in the Trump era with a lot of teams, right? It was very controversial and teams made decisions based on their own feelings. The feeling of the team was like, no, he's trying to use us to cater to the, to the black vote. We don't want to go. So Lincoln Phillips politely declined. And all of a sudden, an NCAA investigation happened. And, and wow. somehow... Yeah, somehow the, uh, the the championship was revoked, and there's actually some very famous footage of of Lincoln Phillips, the head coach at at I think an NCAA event, basically saying like you know more or less like we know why this was taken away, we understand what the situation is, and like we'll come back stronger. And they came back three years later and won it with a perfect record, won every single game. Um, there's a great there's a great little documentary, uh, ESPN 30 for 30 short that was produced uh, in conjunction with Spike Lee. Uh, going through that story. Uh, I think it was called Redemption Song. And I think you can find it on YouTube or if you Google it, Redemption Song, Howard Men's Soccer. 
it's it gives you a good little 20, 30 minute insight to the story. I mean, it's it's shocking, but Howard should be doing much better than it is. It's got the platform to do it. It's an amazing place. It has tons of history. There are loads of players want to play there, and it's just a special place. Uh, if I can share my very, very brief experience with Howard University. Yeah. Uh, I was down in Washington about two years ago for a work conference, and I was staying at an Airbnb right by Howard. Yeah, and you're probably over like U Street area. Exactly. Yeah. And I come out of the, uh, the apartment, and I see this pandemonium on the street and it's just something i've never seen before and sure enough that sunday morning connie os was having a gospel concert on campus oh yeah yeah that's why i was there no way <laughs> yeah 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 dude i mean that that's the thing i mean it's the, it's the mecca it's it's like i mean it is the it is the uh, you know center of excellence of education for the black community in the world i mean not just the united states I mean, it is, it's incredible the people that would come through there and the people that have been there. And like, I'm just this white guy from Bethesda that came into it who barely knew that Howard existed before my time there. And the people I met and, and the kids I got to coach and the campus I got to walk on and the, the shirt I got to wear thinking with all the history behind it. I was like, this place is unbelievable. This place is unbelievable. It's, it's, it seriously gives you a, a different feeling of like, there's so much that's happened here. Like I'm fortunate to just be present and to be a part of this. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in that place and I just want the best for it. And I'm, I, I very much look forward to the day when it, when, you know, I mean, soccer at the end of the day, we look at it, like who cares, but I want them to have success with their teams. I want soccer to be, come back to prominence there. It's just what it deserves. Well, and I will say this. So just so that, our listeners can understand the magnitude of Howard's program, their men's soccer program is the only team from an accredited historically black college and university to ever win a national title in any sport. In any sport. Yeah. That's, 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 and like you that's said, it. it's, it's the Mecca. That, that, that's it. That's yeah. It. Um, before we get into uh, some uh, closing uh, questions and um, closing remarks, uh, Matt, just before we, uh, end off with the coaching stuff uh just maybe hit on a couple of things that you hope to accomplish uh at dc united i mean what are uh what are your goals in terms of uh developing these uh these kids who you've told us uh you have an abundance of talent on this team and what are the ultimate goals is it first team national team uh what do you hope to accomplish with these uh with these boys i think what i <laughs> i think what i hope to accomplish is is like much and I, it's like, I hope I run a good session tomorrow, you know, like that's what I hope <laughs> to accomplish. I hope, I hope we have a good week of practice and I hope next week we have a good game because today's over and the game now doesn't matter anymore. Um, that's very much where like my mindset is with this team because I, I, I don't want to think further down the line. I know like, okay, with DC United Academy, we're developing pros that we're developing kids who can go into loud and, uh, the reserve team, the first team. But I worry, like, if I think about it like that, then it's, it's, it's not putting things into perspective. It's not, it's not literally preparing these kids for what's coming tomorrow. Like I can't look at a 14 year old, 13 year old kid and be like, Oh, I got to prepare him for 10 years from now when he's playing for, you know, Hernando Sada in the first team. 
I need to prepare him for tomorrow. I need to prepare him for having a good session tomorrow and understanding what his defensive duties are. I need to put him in a good position, you know, tomorrow to understand like what we can improve on from the last game into the next one, because it's just little building blocks like day by day by day by day. Um, you know, if, if some of these kids end up playing pro one day, like, cool, great. I'm thrilled for them. And that'll be fun to see. But my bigger thing is like, I just don't want them to be pieces of shit at the end of the day. I want them to be good people. I want them to go and contribute to society. I want them to, uh, you know, pay it forward. I want them to do what, what Emil did for me growing up. You know, Emil trained me like every day, every day I'd go to practice great with our team. And then I hit him up. Like, hey, can we train tomorrow? Can I meet you at, you know, this school? Can I do this? And he'd be like, yeah, sure. And he never charged me a dollar. He never charged my parents a dollar. And he just did it because clearly somebody did it for him growing up. Um, and so all I want for these guys are just to like understand you know, to be grateful for things, to work hard, to commit to what they're doing, to be kind to people, to hold themselves to a high standard, just like stuff like that, just like have good values. Um, and I, I think that's the foundation for anything else that they will go on and do it, you know, or not do in their lives. And if they end up being pros, like I said, cool, that's a bonus. Great. Maybe that means I did my job to outsiders looking in. Yeah, that's awesome. In a day and age where, I, in my opinion, there are more distractions than ever, especially, you know, for that generation or that age group, do you find it challenging to keep them focused? Or maybe I should phrase it in this way. Did you, when, when you were their age and you were sort of going up the ranks, do you think there were more challenges in, in keeping that focus than there are now? And how do you keep them on track? And I guess the follow-up question is, are these players staying on campus? Is there the academy where that, that's housing these players, like typically how you see in Europe? Or are these you know, players mostly going back home with their local players? Yeah, so these guys are all local. Um, they're all going back home on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, yeah. Are there more distractions? I think it's... Uh, with social media? Yeah maybe, and yeah, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't discount social media, of course. Uh, that's very different to, to when we were growing up and that was just coming into to prominence, right? But, you know, I, I didn't deal with social media growing up. Like Facebook wasn't a thing until like I was in late high school or college and still nobody used it, you know? We had um, MSN Messenger. We had, we had, we had, that's right, man. We had Instant Messenger and we just started having cell phones. Uh, you couldn't text anybody because it was too expensive. Uh, so we from that standpoint, BBM, <laughs> BlackBerry. Yeah, BBM. right. Yeah. BlackBerry Messenger, man. Uh, from that standpoint, yes, there, there are definitely different challenges. But yeah. two things. Uh, the, the boys that I have are soccer obsessed and it's all they do and they love doing it and they do it all the time and all everything they talk about whether it's FIFA or it's social media or it's, you know, what they're watching on TV, it's all directed towards soccer, you know? Um, so yeah, there are different distractions. There are different ways you have to manage it, but I also think you have to, you have to play into it somewhere. I'm not going to argue with them about social media or video games or don't do this or don't do that because I said so like they're 14 year old kids, 15 year old kids. Like this is generational. It's just like, you know, in, in the 50, you know, when kids are reading comic books many years before. 
social media or cable TV or anything. And everyone's like, oh, stop reading comic books. Like it's junk. It's garbage. It's not good for your brain. Then it became TV. Then it became video games. Now it's social media. Like you can't argue it. So you have to figure out a way to just channel it and use it the right way. And, you know, with these guys, for example, I still very much value the importance of us, let's say, doing things face to face, having conversations face to face, making eye contact, like learning social cues. Um, and I say that very seriously because I think it's something that we're running the risk of losing some with the younger generation who stare at phones, who stare at the ground, who stare at computer screen and don't really value social cues and eye contact and body language and stuff like that. Um, but also, you know, uh, for example, we use a wellness questionnaire where I can check in to see like how they're doing, how sore they are, how tired they are, how they slept last night, what their mood is. And how do we do that? We do that through an application called Soccer Pulse, uh, where it pings them a message. It comes to their phone that they're always on and always have in their hand and probably more comfortable talking to than to a person face to face. So I can get more honest information to them in terms of how they feel, what their mood is, how they slept. So then I can then better formulate what they need at training and in our club environment and also get red flags of like, oh, God, this kid isn't sleeping at all. Or his stress level just skyrocketed. Why? Or his mood is really bad, as he noted in this app. I, I need to like check in with this kid and see how he's doing, which he might not tell me in a conversation. Um, so there's a balance. I think you have to use it, use it to your advantage and, and try not to fight it because you're, it's a losing battle. That's uh, that's great. Uh, I want to move into more some uh, some current uh, conversations about what's going on in football, uh, and maybe not just football. But uh, right now, Matt, uh, who's your favorite team in Europe to watch? Who's got you uh, tuning in, watching a game or two, whenever you have the the chance? Uh, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said Atalanta. I knew you were going to um, say that. I knew it. Well, I just have to say that because you got to give Sari awesome love. Um, <laughs> but I'll say right this moment, it's Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea. <laughs> wow. It's, it's great that you say that because we actually, we had asked uh, some of our listeners some questions that we could blend into this episode. And the, the next question I was going to ask you, what do you make of Thomas Tuchel's reign at Chelsea so far? So It's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. And, and, and again, the results prove it um, or at least prove this, the success of it from a, from a very simplistic standpoint, but just look at how the team is structured and look at how they're playing. And he's implemented this, this three back system, which he's utilizing fantastically. And if you've read anything about his training methodology, he, he has a very, very big focus on keeping players interested and keeping them stimulated and not kind of going through, let's say the traditional training regimens you would imagine possession games directional games tactical walkthroughs tactical scenarios that that whatever but he'll actually like create games where he'll like manipulate the field sizes the field shape he'll use different size balls all these different things just to motivate players i think it's fair to say that um that team was just done with lampard and i think his voice was no longer uh speaking to those players and Honestly, I, I got to watch both those uh, games against Atletico in particular for the Champions League because I have my my ties to Atletico, and they were just they were they were clinical. Uh, they when they had to be, uh, but they were just I mean they just shut them down. It was just a very professional uh, Chelsea squad that you saw, 
And, uh, you know, at this point, why not, why not them win it all the way that they're right. going? Well, I think it's so important and it's, and it's, you know, what do I know or any of us know about what it's going on behind the scenes, but it very much did seem like Lampard was losing guys. Um, and I think the other piece of it is like, you look at the group now and it just looks like they have clarity. It looks like guys know exactly what their job is. You know, it looks like guys, like everybody knows what their role is within the team. And I think having clarity and a sound, solid foundation um, is just such an important piece because when players like have clarity in terms of this is what I do here, this is what I do there. This is my job. This is my role. Okay. I know what my job is. This is how I'll operate. Um, it just makes things so much easier. Your favorite album of 2021 so far, or give me a couple of artists that you're listening to right now, if you don't have a, an actual album in mind. Evan, are you up or am I up? Well, the question was for who? Both of us. <laughs> Both of us? Evan, you go. We're all, you, man. We're, we're all answering. We're, we're taking turns here. This I, I wouldn't know for 2021 exactly, but this, this last week, for some reason, has found me listening to uh, practically two artists that are completely unrelated, but they keep... You know, their songs keep looping on my on my playlist. One is Foo Fighters, and the other one is The Weeknd. Classic. That's yeah. Good artist, but very different. That's, yeah, uh, very different. How about you, Matt? Uh, it's I was just like I have a lot of variability in what I listen to, man. It's like a wide spectrum. Um, I was listening like yesterday, for example. I was listening to this guy Willie Nelson, who's like this, not not the, not the Willie Nelson. Um, oh, it's a different like, Willie Nelson. Yeah, he's like this, but he's like a folk singer. He's got this one song I really like that I've been listening to. Um, and then from him to like John Mayer will pop on my radio, and then it'll go all the way across to like Wizkid and something totally unrelated and totally different, you know. Um, or then to like. Tycho, like something electronic and you know more like ambient so i, I don't know man i mean i i think there's good music in in every genre um in in every era and i don't know man every every song i listen to like speaks to me in a different way i don't know do, do you listen to any italian music yeah 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 a bunch i listen to like uh marrakesh and fabri fibra they're like italian rappers sort of like when i, I was there giovanotti is like the really famous guy who's yeah. more pop yeah, I I know Fab uh, Fabri Fibra, or did I say it backwards? Yeah, no, Fabri Fibra, dude. Fabri Fibra is like yeah, he, he goes uh, hard. He goes hard, and he's extremely intelligent, man. He raps about like serious issues in Italy, like talking about you know economic issues, talking about the mafia, talking about like mm -hmm. I mean all kinds of different stuff. And I I enjoy listening to him, man. He's got some he's got some great music. Uh, there's there's a track that he does and i got into this italian singer i think she has one of the most amazing voices i've ever heard i know you're gonna say you're gonna say laura Pasini. no i'm not who are you gonna say gianna nanini okay yeah 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 i remember her she's got years. she's she's got a very unique voice but uh you're gonna have to text me that other name because i want to i'm gonna i'm gonna google that yeah marrakesh is good uh no the other one that you just said the unique oh name, laura Pasini. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, the 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 best album that I've heard thus far this year, uh, I think, has been the uh, the Kid Cudi album, "Man on the Moon 3. I enjoyed that. You know, our, our, our my guy Alessandro over at our, our HE facility, he's always got that on. 
he's always way more cutting edge with music than I am. So I'll have to ask him. Are you saying that I'm cutting edge? Because I yeah, dude, you're, you're super cutting edge, man. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. Well, uh, before we let you go, Matt, there's a question we like to ask our guests and, um, you know, uh, it's uh, the aliens have come to our planet and they're threatening, <laughs> they're threatening to take over. Uh, and so in order to, you know, decide whether or not they do it, they go through with total annihilation. You got to play them in uh, an 11 aside match. You you've been chosen as the, as the manager. It's like space jam. This is yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a bit space jam esque. Um, and basically you have to pick a starting 11. And so, because you're based in the U S and you know, uh, you're, uh, you're at a MLS Academy, the restrictions that we'll put on your team is that you have to pick, uh, American born players who, uh, you know, let's say this, your best starting 11 of Americans right now. So you have to give us a, you know, you're going to play a three back, a four back. I don't know. Uh, there's obviously uh, some very exciting American talents that have made their way to, to Europe now. And they're playing at some of the biggest clubs uh, over there. So, you know, how, how are you going to beat the aliens so that we don't die? <laughs> Ah, that's a lot no, of pressure, no, dude. No, it's no pressure at all. It's a lot of pressure, yeah, because if we don't beat the aliens in the Space Jam soccer version, then we're going to have total world annihilation. Well, you know what? And, you know, I feel like, and don't take this the wrong way, but I feel like the rest of the world, if these restrictions were <laughs> were were set, I feel like you would feel the entire world just roll their eyes back that the Americans are the ones that are going to have to play yeah. football against, against yeah. the aliens. Well, but, what is it? The Greeks? What is it? The Greeks, huh? Well, if it's the Greeks, we're going to show up an hour late because we were busy having our coffee or something. Yeah. And you're going to tie zero, zero. Did you mention <laughs> a, a, did you mention a six, two, two formation? Yeah. A six, two, two. That's what we're going to play. <laughs> Extremely um, condensed in the middle of the field. Defend the goal for your life. Uh, yeah. Listen, we have loads of young players who are gone up right now, and I'm a big believer in the youth. So uh, throw the kids out there to play against them. Uh, Zach Steffen in goal, no doubt. Uh, you'd have to have Pulisic in there. You'd have to have Tim Weah in there. Uh, probably throw Josh Sargent, who's out at Bremen, who I like a lot. I think he offers a lot. Um, Daryl DK is a tough one right now. I like him right this moment a ton. I didn't know how he was really going to pan out after college. And then he had a good season with Orlando and now he's like killing it at Barnsley. And I think he's got mm -hmm. a lot of value. He's a good, like solid hold up work hard. Number nine. Um, who else? He got Gio Reyna. He's fantastic. He'd be in the mix there. Um, I'm, of course, Weston McKinney. Weston yeah. McKinney's in there. I'm assuming um, Dest is in there. Oh, of course. Sergino Dest has to be in there. Weston McKinney has to be in there. Uh, Tyler so Adams has to be in there. You're not taking John Brooks? Well, you got to have a center back. So John Brooks would be in the mix, <laughs> I suppose. I mean, who's a better center back than him right now in the U.S.? I mean, Miazga well, is kind of falling out of the picture a little bit. I was going to say, I mean, I, I, I was going through the starting 11 with Evan that we would think of. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned Brooks and then I got stuck. I'm like, all right, who else are we going to bring in? Um, but, uh, Mark McKenzie, but I think McKenzie plays more on the outside. He just left the union and signed, where is he, in Austria or something? 
Um, but yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. It's like, uh, I honestly couldn't tell you who the man at that position is right now, you know, in all honesty, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe Brooks and Miazga just for argument's sake. Um, Dest on the right. Who's, uh, who's playing, who's playing on the left. Uh, who's the kid? Anthony Robinson. Throw him on the left side over at Fulham. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how many guys do I have left? I lost count. I don't know. You, but are you, you bringing have... in the boys from Toronto, Michael Bradley and USC Altidore? No, we're not bringing them in. <laughs> 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 I very uh, much appreciate what they've done for the national team, and they should be given a lot of respect. I wish Michael Bradley never left AS Roma. Uh, his nickname there was Lex Luthor. They loved him. And <laughs> it... say what? Say again. Was it actually his nickname there? Yeah, yeah. The radio host would always because he had a shaved head. He was like this bald headed white American guy. And uh I guess Lex Luthor from the comic books <laughs> was looked exactly the same. So in similar Italian fashion, that's what they do. They just stick you the name nickname of the person you look like. Wasn't his uh, father at the time the the head coach at Roma? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Bob Rowley, who's out at LAFC now. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, they, they they did a very good thing, but it's time for them. And I, I, I don't know the guys, but I'm sure they would also acknowledge it's time for the next group to come through and they can mentor as needed, you know? Sure. Uh, and just before we let you go, Matt, because since we're on the topic of, you know, the, the men's national team, would you say all these talents uh, having the success that they're having in, in Europe right now, would, can you point to Jurgen Klinsmann and his time at the American program and say he's part of the reason that this uh, influx happened? Or would you say it was a gradual, just over time, it was only a matter of time before it happened? I certainly think he was part of it. Um, I certainly think he brought a lot of attention to the American game. Um, I think we very much see it from, from our side being in the U.S., and saying that he did so much to push players out, right? And you can look at that from whichever stance you want. I mean, obviously, the MLS wasn't a huge fan of it at the time. Don Garber wasn't a huge fan of it, I think, was made pretty clear, which is understandable, of course. You want to keep talent here. But it forced it forced the MLS to, to improve what we were doing or what they were doing from an academy perspective and a club perspective in developing – talent and creating a pathway for them to go forward and get higher level exposure and so on and so forth. I think the other side of it that Clemson may have done that maybe we are less uh, aware of or knowledgeable of is how much attention he created overseas looking in this way to be like, listen, there is talent here. Like there is serious untapped potential here. Um, You just have to come and look for it. And I think what you see I think what you see so much now is like you go out to any of these showcases, man, and it's not just college scouts there anymore. It's like there are European scouts there looking at players and they're getting more and more attention. Um, So, yeah, I think he helped create that relationship. I think he helped create really a positive perspective on American players abroad. Because I remember even when I was there, it was like, Chucky American kid, like you don't know what are you gonna do? Like, you're gonna like wrestle everybody, you're gonna like just run through people and, and, you know, you have no idea how to play. And it, it was very much like a reputation um, that Americans had developed abroad of just being like one dimensional 
big, fast, strong guys who were just going to run but couldn't handle a ball and had no clue how to play tactically. Yeah, I, I think that's think, changed. Yeah, I, I think on paper, this is, in my opinion, the best group of players the U.S. national team has had just by taking the team where they're playing at, how big of a club it is, and then the age of that player and just, you know, potentially not even having reached that potential. And hopefully that's the case by 2026. Is, am I, is that correct? When the World Cup is in the US? Yeah. Yeah. And, and don't forget, Matt, uh, just so you know, uh, Canada is coming at you guys. We're, we're coming at you and we're coming at you hard. <laughs> You're laughing, eh? I'm going to attack yeah. you from one side with Alfonso Davies. On the other, Jonathan David. I have Kyle Aaron up top. So you better find that second center back because you're going to need it. I'll tell you that much. We're going to play three backs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to play six backs. I already told you, dude. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, no, um, let's uh, – dude, yeah, we're getting uh, hammered from both sides, both from Mexico and from Canada. The pressure is being turned up. Man. I mean, there is no doubt about it. And now you've got – I mean, this, this conversation just speaking south of the border between – these these players who can go both ways between Mexico and America, like that problem has got to be solved somehow. Like we've got to get more of these young Latino talents committing to the U.S. and we have to do a better job to can commit to them and, and get them to commit to us. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Canada, man, Canada is, is uh, giving us a run for our money. Well, Alfonso well, Davies is no joke. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. He, uh, we're recording this on a, on a Saturday, he actually got red carded today, and then Bayern scored three goals in five minutes. So, that, uh, that's Bayern doing Bayern things. Yeah, um, precisely. Uh, Matt, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, you're uh, you're always a pleasure to chat some football with, and hopefully, uh, this border uh, is lifted uh, soon, so I can make my way to DC and we can catch up uh, over a coffee like we always do. Yeah, um, man, absolutely. Uh, wishing you the best of luck this year with your U15s. Um, uh, you know, just, you know, keep them uh, becoming good human beings. And that's the plan. Uh, wishing you uh, all the best uh, on the on the pitch as well. And um, yeah, I, uh, I appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, thank you. Yeah, man, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Better, better people make better soccer players. So that's the that's the goal.